Thank you, Chad. Thank you, worship team. Aren't they awesome? We get them. It is such a privilege to sit in worship like this every Sunday. God bless them. I love it. And I love being here. I love that you are awake. It is Sunday morning and we're in God's house. Amen? I love that crowd in the second hour. I'm not making any comments about the 9 o'clock crowd. I'm just saying. It's a good day. It was dark. The clouds got heavy. There was a thickness in the air. It's kind of like, ooh, ominous, dark. We flip on our TV. There is a tornado watch. You see, we spent 14 years in Minnesota, and when there's a tornado watch that could turn to a warning, you get your game face on. Anybody live or grow up in the Midwest? You know what I'm talking about? Many more in this hour. You know what I'm talking about. And so there's a warning, and if it's a warning, you're headed for the basement. And yes, mama's planning pays off because she has that big storehouse worth of stuff that the kids are always going, can't we break into it now? No, that's the case we're here for 37 days, right? And so there's this warning, and we pay attention. In our chapter today, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there's a warning, and we better pay attention. In this section, Paul kind of gives us this panoramic view of how a godless culture plays out in real time. Now, if you remember from last week, we finished up in chapter 2, where he gave us this warning about engaging in like frivolous, foolish debates. But now there's an equally serious threat in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about the consequences of buying into a culture that rejects God. Let's look at it together. If you'll take your outline out, and you know that I love to see pens and outlines and Bibles and or cell phones. I don't care how it goes for you. All taking notes, looking at the text, and let's do that together. Let's take a look. First of all, you see the problem, a culture's rejection. That's verses 1 through 5. And we'll see, verse 1, that there's a difficult time. The Scripture says, and by the way, if you're wondering what version we're using now, we're using the ESV, and Lord willing, in a few weeks. Next week, there will actually be Bibles that are ESV Bibles so that We'll all be on the same page. I don't remember a few, several months ago I said, turn to page such and such. I didn't realize we had two different sets of Bibles, and it was the wrong page for those on that side, the right page for you. That'll all be solved next week. So we're reading from the ESV. It says this in verse 1, a difficult time, but understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty, some difficulty. Now, this is not a new phenomena, and the question everyone wants to ask, are we in the last times, Pastor John? I don't know if we're in the last days prophetically, but we've been in the last days since uh, Pentecost, and it's not a new phenomena. These are the things that describe culture that is living apart from God, and we're going to end up looking at 18 characteristics in just a moment, but it's not a new phenomena, and in fact, it's not new for Paul. Romans 1, 19, uh, 1 chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 29 to 32, describes a very similar day, but he says the last day, circle at that. Now, the very first time I ever dealt with this text, I remember, was I was preaching this on February 12, 1989, 
And I've changed a few illustrations since then, but it's the same text, the same culture, the same society that uh, we deal with today. And the question is whether we're living in the last days or not is not the salient issue. What is it in terms of how are you going to respond living in that kind of culture? Because if we're not careful, the outside permeates the inside, and the church becomes undistinguishable or indistinguishable from the culture that surrounds us. Now, it says it's difficult. That, that's a word that says it's, it's grievous, it's hard, it's a painful thing. Matthew 8.28 uses it of two demoniacs that are, were violent and dangerous, and that's how he describes this time we're living is. It's also used of this kind of ugly, oozing wound, and in that, that's a little more of a word picture for culture, this, this, this cancer that infects and permeates those around us. And you say, oh, man, this is probably not the time to be inviting a guest because you're going to go over this long grocery list of gross stuff. Actually, this is the perfect time because it's a chance for you to look at the text and say, how much of that is a part of who I am? And I've, I've just kind of gone along the easy river. On the other hand, this is not this kind of hand-wringing, I'm woe-is-me kind of sermon. It is a sobering wake-up call, but we've got to engage our culture. And I'm going to give you a strategy by the end of the sermon to say, how do we take what we're experiencing in our culture and engage the culture? And we'll talk about that when we land the plane at the end. So, it is a warning, and it, we've got to just take a hard look at it. Now, look at the description of their behavior in verses 2 through 4. I warn you, there's 18 descriptors of culture in the age we live in. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I want to suggest to you, as anytime you see a list, you've got to ask yourself, what would I have put in that list? I think there's some things that are conspicuously absent because those are the things that we camp on when Christians all get in their holy huddle and go, yeah, but we don't like them. So one thing I don't see in there is I don't see dancing. Apparently, that isn't one of the big 18. Now, some of you should not dance, and we'll just leave it at that for other reasons. It's not immoral. It's just ugly. All right? I'm just saying. So, I don't see dancing in there. Um, I don't see dating non-believers, although I think that's a really dangerous uh, deal. I don't see tobacco in the list. I don't see pot in the list. Now you're going, oh, now he's really going down a slippery soap. You see, we can come down with any list of things that are our favorites to kind of camp on as like, you got to not do this stuff. But this is more of a general description of culture that we're immersed in. It's all around us. So let's take a look at it. Number one, lovers of self. This idea of being self-pleasing. I think the number one sin of culture is putting us on the throne. It's called meism. Me, me, and I. Me, me, and me. Me, myself, and I. The holy trinity of self-centeredness. And the bottom line is when you set yourself up as the one to be lifted up, you're going to not 
be in a place where God intended. We are self-absorbed. I was telling someone, uh, I was reading this quote the other day. We spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't even like, right? <laughs> Isn't that the epitome of being self-absorbed? Shirley MacLaine is, a, is an actress that nobody in the front row even knows anything about, but some of you in the back rows might recognize her. She wrote in the Washington Post once, the most pleasurable journey is through yourself. The only sustaining love is with yourself. Ultimately, the only thing you have is the consummation of your own identity. And we see it in magazines with Us Magazine and Self Magazine, and ultimately our Christian worldview has a diametrically opposed worldview. It isn't about you. It's about Him. That's why The Purpose of Life is such a great book to give to someone who's trying to figure out where is God fit in their life because he starts with the premise, it's not about you. It is not about you. And so I want to ask us a simple little question. Who is on the throne of your life? Is it you or is it God? Number two, lovers of money. We get that. And in our culture, if you live in Westlake, Calabasas, Malibu, Agura, everybody gets a little nervous when the, uh-oh, the money sermon is about to be evoked. Now, look at here. It is what? Money is not the issue. Are we, are we clear on that? It is the love of money, right? 1 Timothy 6.10, it's the love of money. It is not having money. Money built this church. Money will uh, reinvent our multi-purpose room, hopefully, in the year to come. Amen. Amen. God loves a happy kitchen. All right. So, he's not condemning money, but he is condemning the love or pursuit of it, the materialism and all the trappings that are so seductive. Now, I won't mention what school or where, but I was shown a picture on Instagram. I mean, this is the ultimate birthday gift. A certain student at a certain school, the girlfriend's family gave the boy a Porsche for his birthday. I want to know the name of that family because, no, I'm just, I'm telling you, I, that's a big gift. It was amazing. That was a good-looking car, too. Anyway, the love of I mean, we can see how we get kind of seduced by that. It's an age-old problem. Now, some of us go, oh, man, what's the big deal about making money? I think the people who don't have it are oftentimes the most envious of the people who do have it. I think about the people in our church who are so gracious and I don't care how much money you make. I want to know more. How are, is God using what you've made to impact the kingdom? So I don't really care if Alex Rodriguez made $252 million over a 10-year contract. Why aren't you praying for him to come to faith in Christ and start attending and tithing at ABF? <laughs> come on now. It's all good. Um, Nelson Rockefeller said this, how much money is enough? He was interviewed. He says, and you know the famous quote, just a little bit more than you've got. That's what the Scripture is condemning, that it's never enough mentality. Now, with all due respect to the Lord's Prayer, some of us, if we kind of elevated the dollar, this is how the Lord's Prayer would be. Our dollar, who art invested, hallowed be thy capital gains. Thy dividends come, thy compounding done in stocks as it is in bonds. 
Give us this day our daily interest and forgive us our debts as we raise the debt ceiling. <clears throat> and do not lead us into recession, but deliver us from double-digit inflation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for now. Number three, he says proud or boastful. Literally, yeah, the word is used of a quacking duck. Uh, this kind of that medicine man that's peddling his potions. And we all know who the proud guy is. Uh, it's that guy who goes to your 10th or 20th high school reunion, and he is still living in the past. I mean, he's talking about how great he was, and it's just like, wah, 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 right? And this is kind of, you say, well, look at the next one. You have proud and arrogant. Why would he put two words that mean almost the same? The proud size of this is this idea of the external behavior. The next one, arrogant, is the internal or attitude. One is more about the action. The other one is more about the attitude. In fact, this whole idea of being proud, you think of those of you who are just a little older now. Isn't it amazing how much better you are in your remembrance now that you've gotten older about those days in college and in your young adult years? Uh, it's amazing how much better we get as we remember ourselves. I think that's called revisionist history. Just, I see it with you fishermen because the fish was this big, not this big, and you know the story. Number four is arrogant, that internal attitude. And this is the idea of Showing oneself better, this kind of this overbearing kind of, I'm a little altered to myself. And this is the kind of person who kind of looks at other people in ways that say, yeah, I'm just a cut above you. I'm just a little better than you. They kind of like look down and go, Phew, rough day, huh? And they just kind of give that air of superiority. Now, all of us have probably been in some place where we go, you felt kind of like Gomer Pyle. Now, I realize I'm, nobody knows who Gomer Pyle is. Does anybody know who Gomer Pyle is? About five of you do. But I've been in that environment where I felt like Gomer Pyle. I'm in some place, like the first time I ever did a wedding at Sherwood Country Club. I walked in there and went, golly. You know, I, I was just a little overwhelmed with all the ostentatiousness of that place. And I got to do a wedding, and you're just praying you don't do anything stupid. Or you don't, you know, have any bean hanging from your tooth, and you just want to get out of there. But that kind of arrogance, this kind of, I'm righteously better than you are. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 talk about that, right? About both being arrogant and proud. God is what? Opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. Now, I'm not condemning a good, healthy self-image, but some people have an inflated view, and, we'll, and we're going to come back to that. You're going to come back to that, those two ideas a couple more times in this list. Number five, abusive or revilers. If you are proud and arrogant, you can see the sequence of events. If you're a lover of self that lives itself in pride and arrogance, then you will become an abusive person. You will be not physically abusive. You just insult people. Uh, you're, you're, you think poorly of people. Your body language just reeks with I'm better than you, and now I'm going to tell you why I'm better than you. Number six, disobedient to their parents. Number six, disobedient to their parents. Um, literally, you know, um, in Roman law, uh, a kid could be stoned to death for disobedience. We're grateful that that is not the, the rule of our land. But the bottom line is, he's talking about a talk back, fight back, answer back, get back kind of society. 
Now, i got to just ask us, no offense, students in the room, but who's in charge here? Who's running the family today? I think one of the fundamental mistakes that we've bought into in our culture and it's seeped in the church is that we have child-centered families. Uh-uh, that's not God's plan. We have God-focused families that start on a marriage-centered family. God-focused, marriage-centered. Kids come too. That's just bad news for those of you near the front. Um, I hate to say it, but guess what? It's not about you. We love you. But if we don't get our priorities like, we got a problem. And it, by the way, it starts way back when you're eight and nine. Let's just get it clear here. We're all on the soccer team. We love Jesus, but you're not all equally good. You don't all deserve a trophy. I'm on now. Oh, we, gotta, we have to build their self-esteem. Everybody gets a partic- participation trophy. Are you kidding me? You don't even have to walk and chew gum. You're six years old. You're a nerd. You're not very talented. And you'll grow into those shoes someday. You know, come on. Now, I'm kind of messing with you because there's no children here to be. <laughs> I'm really not the center of the team. No, you're just a cog. Um, but you see, we elevate kids as if that's the idol. And in culture, we see this whole disobedience of parents. There was a, a crazy, weird deal that kind of was introduced several years ago. There, someone was trying, his name was um, Dr. Richard Orson. He wanted to enact the Children's Bill of Rights. Do you remember that? Children should have the right to make all their own decisions. Children at any age should have the right to live where they choose. Children of any age should have the right to vote and be involved in any decisions affecting their lives. Children should have access to any information that is available to adults, even including pornography. Um, Children of any age should be responsible for their own educational pursuits. This one I kind of liked if I were a kid. Free to quit school or only attend when convenient. And I mean, it goes on and on and on. Probably not what we would say is helpful to our culture or for our church. Number seven, ungrateful. This idea of being unthankful, not appreciative, having so much but caring so little. I got to tell you, um, kind of twin corners of gratefulness, uh, when you are grateful, you also tend to be generous. And I got to tell you, this church is a grateful church, and it certainly is a generous church. And um, I, I love the fact that I get to be a part of this kind of loving, grateful, kind-hearted, generous body. Um, But this idea of being grateful, if you are grateful for all that God's given you, here's a little practical little tip. How about not only October be Pastor Appreciation Month, but Love Your Waiter or Waitress Month, all right? Tip a little more this month. Be grateful for what God's blessed you with and give a little more to them as well. This is not an announcement for any of you who are, no one paid me off to say that. I just, I think that's why we can show gratefulness. Number eight, unholy. This is not just the breaking of a written law, but this idea of unholy is this abnormal lack of decency, this perverse kind of irreverence. And when you tie in unholy, you're going to see a little later not loving good. You're going to see that he says something once in this, and he comes back and revisits it and says it a different way. You're going to see several of these couplets over and over again, this unholiness. Now, I love uh, Ted Koppel. 
He was one of my favorite newscasters back in the day, and he once gave a, a commencement address at Duke University talking about our culture and unholiness. He says this, We have actually convinced ourselves that slogans will save us. Shoot up if you want, but, you, but use a clean needle. Enjoy sex whenever and with whomever you wish, but wear a condom. No, he says, no, the answer is no, not because it isn't cool or smart or you might end up in a jail or dying in the AIDS ward, but no, because it's wrong. Because we spent 5,000 years as a race of rational human beings trying to drag ourselves out of the primeval slime by searching for truth and moral absolutes. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It's a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. Unholy. Nine, heartless. The idea of being unloving, unfeeling, unsympathetic. Heartless. You see people who are heartless all the time. Ever been in a left-hand turn lane where there is no, like, permission to turn left? you got to wait for oncoming traffic? Just try to turn left. That is called heartless. You just wait. And wait, and wait. doesn't matter how long you're waiting. Heartless. Anybody goes to Oaks Christian? Anybody? Heartless is being up 56 to nothing, and you're still passing in the fourth quarter. That is heartless. I don't think they did that, probably. I hope not. I, by the way, I spoke for their chapel on, on Thursday, the football chapel. They have a team dinner every Thursday night, and uh, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Heartless. Heartless. Is would be like um, Peyton Manning cheering against Eli Manning when the Giants were in the Super Bowl, and that would be heartless. You just wouldn't do that. Number 10, unappeasable. This idea of being irreconcilable, bitter, cold, war, lack of forgiveness, holding grudges, can't get past your stuff, holding on to the past. You see, those kinds of characteristics, when you use that one, you kind of go, hmm, has culture just crept into the church? Are we just, as Christians, sometimes unwilling to let go? Are we unappeasable? We don't get our way, so we leave churches. Or the pastor doesn't preach the way you want him to preach, and so, oh, I've got opinions about this. Number 11, slanderous, literally malicious gossips. Maybe you watch the movie Gossip Girls, or the show Gossip Girls, or you saw the movie Mean Girls. This slanderous gossiping, the, the, you know what the word is for gossip? It's diabolos. Satan is the great accuser. It's the Greek word for devil. And so it's not that you gossip, but there's an intentional, malicious, um, perverse pleasure in slandering someone else's character. Any of you who have businesses or restaurants or have any kind of service deal, I mean, you're held captive and hostage to the Internet now because anybody can go on Yelp and make an opinion about your customer service or your restaurant or your food. And if you've ever been slammed, you know this, like, stinks because there's no recourse. They won't take it off the website. Um, some of you know I do a lot of weddings, and my buddy Dave Page and I do a ton of weddings for people who are unchurched, dechurched, or irreligious. And he did a wedding recently where the couple just wasn't happy with him, and it wasn't his fault, and they went on wedding night and just slammed him and just made up all kinds of stuff. And it was like really bumming him because you see like five, 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 one. 
And we're, perspe- per, you know, we can kind of take it all in, but people who are slanderous, they leave people's reputations in tatters on the, on the sidewalk. We don't want to have anything to do with that. No part of that. Number 12, without self-control, ungovernable, unrestrained, this uninhibited kind of slave to habits. It's this, I'm just going to have one more scoop of that ice cream. It's the, she made chocolate chip cookies last night, and my wife makes great oatmeal chocolate chip cookies, and the plate started in a mound. I will take the fifth on how many are now left. Lack of self-control. You see, the lovers of self, remember we started with lovers of self? Ultimately, a lover of self who's proud and abusive and self-centered ultimately has no control even of himself, though. Thirteen, brutal. I'm going to show you two images. The literal word means savage, like a coyote, a fierce wild beast. But in our culture, brutal is best illustrated by serial murderers. And we've all heard the horror stories of Ted Bundy, John Gacy, Richard Ramirez, Lawrence Singleton, and the kook who held those three gals captive for 10 years in prison. That, my friends, is brutal. And the problem is we're so desensitized to violence because we allow it on our TV screens. It's, it's in our... It's in our homes. Now, hopefully we're we're not into that. And we make a big deal about, hey, no sex. Well, how about violence? Equally bad. 14, not loving good or literally haters of good. And it's not just about being unloving. It's about the idea of not just, it's not just, it's hating good. It's being embarrassed by good. It's hating what should be loved and loving what should be hated. Isaiah 5.20 gives us the same illustration. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, the Lord warned the wicked, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Not good. And you've all seen that where all of a sudden, really, this is okay? I don't think it's okay. Treacherous, number 15, treacherous, literally traitors, and most believe in the con- this context, it was Christians who kind of informed on their Christian brothers during the persecution in Rome. Judas was a traitor. He was treacherous, Luke 6, 16. Those people who were treacherous, who informed. Reckless, number 16. This headlong, rushing to not thinking sensibly, doesn't think about consequences. There's all kinds of people who are reckless in our society. We're reckless, right? We're reckless when we don't believe that God said, wait, wait until marriage. We're being reckless. When God says, be honest, be above reproach, and we say, oh, I can like, I can get away with that. Nobody will know. Nobody will catch me. We're reckless when we risk what's most important in life by making decisions out of expedience because we haven't thought through the choices. Ask any man who's ever had an affair. Was he really thinking about the woman he loved? 
about the kids that are sitting on his mantle above his fireplace? Because that's being reckless. Reckless. It's not just how you drive on the 101 when you're ticked off and you're trying to get somewhere like LAX. That could be reckless too. Number 17, swollen with conceit. See, it comes back again three times. This idea of conceit. It's a know-all, swelled head. I'm the king. I know better than you. Have you ever met someone like that? They just leave off this like, yeah, you don't know what you don't know. Trust me. Like, I got this. Right? I got this. Swollen with conceit. By the way, if you wonder whether you're proud, arrogant, or swollen with conceit, ask yourself in conversation how many questions you ask the other person. Just an idea. I notice the people I love hanging around are people who are other-focused. They're always asking about you. Maybe you're that person, you go, well, they ever ask a question about me? You know, you're a good conversationalist. You ask question after question. They answer. They never ask you a question. Just once you'd like to ask, like maybe it's one of your relatives, right? You're asking about them, and they never ask you about your job. They don't ask how your kids are doing. They're just like all about them. By the way, that is not biographical in my family. I just want to clarify that in case my sister is listening, all right? So we, get, we have a wonderful relationship. Swollen with conceit. Then lastly, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's kind of like the summary of the previous 17. The summary of the previous 17. We kind of have this playboy, Hugh Hefner, kind of, I'm the God of my kingdom, and I want pleasure more than I want anything else. Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Marriage, and he applies this general principle to marriage, but I believe it's true in all of the Christian life. God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. And with our pursuit of hedonism, often that gets lost in the shuffle. Well, not only do we see, first of all, and again, if you're following on your notes, we've looked at a difficult time, a description of their behavior. Let's look at the deception of their approach in verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, holding to a form of godliness is another way of saying it, but denying its power. And what's the response to these kind of folks? Avoid such people. Or in other contexts, avoid such men as these. So these are people who are outwardly have a form of godliness. So even though this long grocery list of cultural things that say, hey, warning, 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 they could have this outwardly say all the right things. There are people in churches, they're called wolves in sheep's clothing. They say all the right things, but there's something not completely right. Now, i got to just tell you, that's what we're dealing with with the cults, right? They're, they have an outward form of godliness, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. In fact, some of you have talked to me about you, you came out of a cult before you came to Christ, faith in Christ. A form of godliness, but our response should be, according to this text, is avoid them. Avoid them. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this, bad company corrupts good character. Avoid those kind of people. And by the way, you can't just dabble with this. You can't go, well, it won't really affect me. I'm just kind of, I'll go there. That's like the alcoholic going to the bar saying, I'm going to witness to my, my, my bar drinking friends. Probably not the best place for you to do your evangelism. 
all right? Or the guy who's into pornography, I'm going to do beach evangelism. Yeah, probably not a good plan for you, right? So avoid them. D, the delusion of their beliefs. Look at verses 6 through 9. We're going to see weak women and wild men, all in the same context. Let's check it out. Verse 6 and 7. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Wow, that is not very politically correct, Paul. This is kind of, let's see what he means by that. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So who are these weak women? Because that doesn't play well in modern culture. Like weak women burdened by sins and led astray. What is he talking about? Well, I think there are decent Christian people, and he uses this illustration, that are distracted and burdened way down because they're searching for something. They're always looking for the next best fix. They're always that crowd that's, that's, that's paying attention to what's, what's in and what's out in culture. And maybe he uses women here because he's going to really nail some guys here in a second. Maybe it's this idea that, that you seek love at any cost, even though ultimately our needs need to be met by the Lord Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's this desire for attention. You're going to get it one way or the other. That idea of looking for love but in all the wrong places. Or this fairy tale of relationships that the media distorts. Or maybe it's that bad, uh, bad girls who go after good guys. So good guys, watch out about that bad girl that you're attracted to. By the way, if truth be known, it's usually good girls chasing after the bad guys doing the, that kind of deal. But there is this problem because... They're never learning and able to arrive, that literally mean to come to recognition or arrive at the truth. Well, what about the guys? Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Verse 9, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Now, we have a slight problem with this text. What is it? You should be asking yourself, who are, who are these guys? It's like Butch Cassie. Who are these guys? Uh, I, they're never mentioned in Scripture. This is the only place. And he writes, says, yeah, you know, like Janus and Jambra. So I can only surmise a couple of ideas. Number one, Janus really means he who seduces. That's what his name means. So don't use that. Looking for baby names, not a good one, all right? Right up there with like Jezebel and Delilah. Probably wouldn't name my girls that. And Jambres, he who makes rebellion. So most commentators think that these two guys were, uh, were not mentioned by name in the Old Testament, but they're likely two of those Egyptian uh, magicians who opposed Moses in Exodus chapter 7 and 8 and, and when they were doing their miracles, trying to kind of one-up Moses. And according to Jewish tradition, they somehow infiltrated uh, the Jewish, uh, they were became Jewish proselytes, supposedly, kind of form of godliness that we talked about. And they were the ones who actually instigated the worship of the golden calf while Moses is getting the Ten Commandments in Exodus 32. We can't, we can't prove that. I don't know what number I'm up to at Information Central when we get to heaven. Remember, I'm asking questions. I'm keeping a list of all those. Hey, who are these guys? But probably doesn't matter because they illustrate the idea of opposing truth. That's the big idea. Whoever they are, they oppose 
truth, and they take their faith very lightly. And they, they, literally it's folly, and eventually they're going to be found out, and everybody's going to see they're such fools, they're such idiots. And the bottom lines are not going to get very far. They'll be exposed. Now, a message like this, you're saying, wow, like 18 descriptors of a culture that's headed the wrong way. I'm so glad, Pastor John, that you gave us such an uplifting sermon today that just bolsters our spirits and we leave here as champions for Christ, knowing that we live in such a depressed, depraved, undiscerning, despicable culture. I have good news for you. Let's look at the pursuit. What is a Christian's response? I want to suggest two things. Number one, be aware. We've got to heed this warning. And certainly, we don't want to compromise. We don't want to go down this moral uh, stream towards, uh, you know, kind of just compromising everywhere we turn. That, that's certainly not what we're about. But we can realize that we can be seduced by culture, like literally the frog in the kettle, so to speak, just not realizing how we've become, as Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, that have been pressed into the mold. That's what that Greek term means. We don't want to do that. But the problem is, what's the practical application? Because I could have us leave here today, and I could see three possible responses. To what's, what's our engagement with the culture? I guess you could start with on the, this would be your right. So on the far right, you have the isolationists, right? The isolations would say, this is what we do with the world. We kind of circle the wagons. We have our holy huddles. We, avoid, we avoid contact with those people, right? And uh, we just protect and we hide our kids from being unduly influenced, and we're isolationists over here. And if we're about isolation, the approach is all about escape. I don't want to even be a part of this world. Now, the flip side of that is the immersion folks. They're the people who are going, yep, I'm going to get right in the middle of the mud, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the party. I, I'm, I don't want to stand out. I'm... I don't want to be odd for God. I just want to blend in. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to just everybody love one another. We just got to accept everything. Well, if that's about escape, that's all about expedience on that side. That's not the plan, friends. You're Christians. You are salt and light. There's only one legitimate middle ground alternative. It's not isolation. It's not immersion. It's infiltration. Amen? I need some Baptists here. Amen? Ah, thank you. Thank you. This infiltration, it's not in the world, not of the world. You're in the world, but not of the world. It's what we were challenged as 20 men last weekend to stand up, act like men, grow up, love God, take care of your family, stand firm, have a plan, make a difference. And that approach isn't about escape. It's not about expedience. It's about eternity. That's what I love. Our whole theme is eternity now as we study in this book. How are we going to make a difference in eternity with people who are far from God? You know why I do all these weddings that most are not from our church? It's because when people get married, have their first kids, and when they die, there are three times where people are listening for something different 
about Christians. Yeah, but they're living together. I know, they need Jesus. Yeah, but they don't even profess to be Christians. I know, they need Jesus. And when their marriage goes south, they're going to remember there was a pastor who loved them in spite of, not because of, not because they were perfect, but because Jesus Christ compels us to love a culture that is hostile to the gospel. That is infiltration. And number two, from 2 Chronicles 7.14, be holy. Be aware, heed the warning, but be holy. Humble yourselves, it says. 2 Chronicles 7.14. Chad's going to come by himself just for a second here while I'm reading this passage. I want you to think about what this is saying to us as believers. Now, I realize you're saying this is for the nation of Israel. It's the thing we read on, you know, National Day of Prayer. No, it's for us. This message is for us. It says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I'll hear their land. Let's break down that verse. There's our part and there's God's part. Look at your notes there. Circle the first three. Humble, pray and seek, turn. First it starts with a humble recognition. We'll humble ourselves. That humble recognition says, I am not the Lord of my universe. Number two, prayerful reflection. What does it mean? Pray, seek His face. Pray and seek His face. And then, heartfelt repentance. Turn. Literally, that means turn 180 degrees away from where you're headed. Turn from their wicked ways. That's our part. In relationship to this text, that's our part. But here's God's part. It's awesome. Then, he's going to hear from heaven. He will receive you. He will forgive their sins. He will redeem you. He'll forgive your sins. And then he'll heal their land. He will restore you. He'll take what the locust has destroyed. I think one of the big issues for those of us in the church are those of you who are being held hostage to your past for stuff that God has forgiven at the cross, but you beat yourself up over it. And so you look at a list like that and go, yep, I'm messed up. I'm proud, I'm arrogant, I'm conceited. And you just take that list and you just beat yourself up. Oh, friend, it's a warning, but it's not a whipping. It's a warning. It's not a whipping. Because when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you kneeled at the cross and God received you. He redeemed you. And my friend, He's going to restore you. You see, the hero of this story isn't a godless culture. The hero of this story 
is that Jesus Christ redeems culture. Ultimately, he makes all things new. Is it easy? Mm -mm. Is it hard to live in the world and not be of the world? You, you bet. Are there times where you have second thoughts and doubts and wonder if you're just a total mess up? Mm-hmm. Are there times where you go, oh, again? I lost my temper again? I was unkind again? I was mean-spirited again? I lusted again? I got angry again? I wish I was driving my neighbor's car instead of my clunker again? Yeah. But thankfully, God knows that you aren't the king of your life. You're not the Lord of your life. And you yield to him. And he's going to take care of all that other stuff. Amen? See, let's worry about us today, not anybody else. Not anybody else that you're worried about that matches this list. Let's just deal with us. Would you bow your heads? That list is convicting, isn't it? And maybe you see a little of yourself in that list. But today is the day of the Lord. It's as easy as repenting of that secret sin and saying, God, I got to let go of that. But if I haven't missed my mark, I bet you some of you, you, you do a good job of beating yourself up. You don't need me preaching at you about convicting you of something. You just got to accept the love and grace and forgiveness of a healing Savior who came to redeem culture and change the world and change your life one at a time. I'm not going to make you come forward, not raise your hand, don't even have to look up, but you know who you are. Either camp, God loves you and forgives you. So, Heavenly Father, we don't want to be indoctrinated by a culture that is anti-God and unholy in ways that are mind-boggling. But, Lord, you came for the world. You love the world. You came to die for sinners like me. And I thank you for your, the freedom that comes at the foot of the cross. So as we sing to you now, we reflect on all the good things you've done in our life. And I pray that, Lord, you would help us leave today victorious upon further reflection. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turning from our sin, we will run to you, Lord. We will run to you. And as we run to you, we kneel with open arms, receiving your love and grace and your mercy. Lord, we stand today warned, but not whipped, aware and willing to live a life of godliness that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's a good day, isn't it? We're going to have some lunch together. Those of you who are our guests, if you don't have lunch plans, just show up. We'll squeeze you in, I think. And we'll be up here for prayer for anybody who wants to pray. And we'll see you next week. God bless.